Uh, Shabbat Shalom and Mazel Tov to Leonard and Marnie. It was but a few years ago, on a beautiful August day, you played the violin before your wedding. Well, during the chuppah, actually. It was beautiful. And a Mazel Tov to you both. So uh, this morning's uh, Torah portion contains um, a beautiful story. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is that much of the best and beautiful ideas that Judaism communicates is communicated through stories. And the reason why Judaism, and particularly the biblical text, uses stories as opposed to just putting ideas down on paper as a whole different discussion. But it often is the case, overwhelmingly so, that the richest, most powerful, impactful ideas that are found in the biblical text are never explicitly stated to you, but they're contained in the mix of a story. And so the story that we read this morning is, um, well, it's remarkable for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the Torah portion is named after a non-Jew. Consider, of course, that of the many parshiot and portions that exist in the Torah itself, um, none is named after Moses, for example. But a non-Jewish king is given the honor of having a Torah portion named after him. It is a story of a king named Balak. And through his eyes, we have an opportunity to discover something that is always important to us, but I suspect that recent occurrences make it even feel more important. So I'm going to open up with the opening words of the story for you. And it reads as follows. And Balak, the son of Tzipor, who is the king, that he took note of what the Israelites had done to the Amorites. And he, being the king of Moab, was deeply disturbed. And what does he say? That this people is mighty, and they are great, and they provide to be a thorn in my side. Almost as if saying, hey, that they scare me. We have an opportunity in reading the story in being able to analyze and interpret what we would call anti-Semitism through a first-person basis. We could see the effect of what the fear of Jews has on him and what he ends up doing as a result of that. He is motivated as a result because he sees the Israelites as being powerful, in fact, perhaps untouchable, that he reaches out to a non-Jewish prophet, this one named Bilam, to come forward and perhaps destroy the Jewish nation with a set of tools that hitherto have not been used before. Pharaoh tried soldiers, didn't work. So Balak thinks perhaps that will use a homeopathic approach to destroying them, that like will kill like, that the Israelites were blessed and strengthened through the prophecy of Moses, that he will bring a non-Jewish prophet that in turn will destroy them. And as I said to you, that this entire story gives us a window view into anti-Semitism. But first what I would like to do is to talk a little bit about fear. There's a great analysis that takes place about 100 years ago in the early annals of psychoanalysis. The question they ask is this. It takes primarily between Freud and Henry James. The question goes like this. When a person is in a forest and they see a big bear approaching them, 
they run away. And they ask fundamentally, why do they run away? Do they run away because they're afraid? Or do they automatically, in other words, biologically run away from the, from the animal, and then they become afraid? In other words, is it our bodies that move us, or is it our emotions that move us? Henry James deeply believed that we are animated by a biology beyond their reckoning and beyond our control. And as a result of that, the body has a flea mechanism beyond our capability of even being controlled by emotion. And then afterwards, our emotions catch up with us. Freud, on the other hand, believed something entirely different. Freud believed that emotions are the things that move us. Freud believed that emotions are like a wild, rolling ocean inside of ourselves. The only crests of the waves do we see. But deep, deep down inside, there's a boil of emotion always churning inside of us. And we only see a little bit of it. Emotions, Freud said, is what is the great mover of our life, not our biology. It's our emotions. And the thing that makes you run away from the big bear is not your body. It's your emotions. This idea, of course, leads us to ask an important question. Because the reality is when you analyze anti-Semitism, you realize that anti-Semitism is not simply racism. In fact, when you analyze anti-Semitism, you realize that there are some profound distinctions between it and what we would call simply racism. What I'm sharing with you is not my own thoughts. I'm resting on the shoulders of a tremendous intellectual who sadly passed away about a decade ago, that being Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens, as some of you may know, um, was an outstanding intellect in the 80s and 90s and somewhat in the 70s when he began his career. He discovered later in his life that he was Jewish. He had been raised as a non-Jew his entire life. Shortly before his mother passed away, she shared the news with him that her parents, in fact, had been Jewish. He had been married twice before. He ended up marrying his third and final wife, in fact, was a Jewish woman. And he said to himself, he should have been married Jews all along because it was the best marriage in his life. When they moved into their apartment in uh, New York, they called upon a rabbi who was a friend of mine to put the mezuzah up on the door. And the rabbi gladly agreed to do so, but he asked Hitchin a question because Hitchens, as you also know, was a famous atheist. The truth of the matter is, though, if I can just diverge for a moment, the atheism that Christopher Hitchens so proudly wrote books on and spoke publicly on was more an atheism railed against traditional conservative Catholic kinds of divinity. The closer he actually began to understand Judaism, I think the less of an atheist he was. He might disagree, though. Anyway, so the rabbi asked him, why is he bothering putting up a mezuzah on his door? After all, he doesn't believe in God. And Hitchens says, well, it's been working for the Jews so far. I'm happy to have it on my door. Hitchens said, actually, when you, and this article is available, uh, you can Google search it. It's about 15 years old. It was printed in the Atlantic Monthly. Hitchens says as follows, the difference between racism and anti-Semitism is that when people hate, for example, people who are brown or black, or they hate Asians, 
or I don't know, they hate Slavic. So whatever combination of person you want to put forward, when people hate those kinds of people, they hate them simply because they are different from what the person is. So I don't like Asians because they don't talk like me or look like me. I don't like black people because they dress differently or sound differently. In other words, the dislike is simply born because the person is different from you. Or, in philosophical language, we would simply call this the hatred of the other. But anti-Semitism is not just hatred of the other. Anti-Semitism is different. What anti-Semitism doesn't what anti-Semitism shows that isn't in racism is that anti-Semitism also has fear in it. Consider this. One of the best-selling books in the world, apart from the Bible, is a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It gained infamy, actually. Uh, Henry Ford was responsible for its uh, dissemination in English-speaking countries. But it reports to have uh, the message of unveiling the great Jewish plot to control the world through the media and the banks. Apparently, according to the legend of the protocols of the elders of Zion, it comes all the way from thousands of years ago. It is the handbook, the manual, that we Jews have been using to manipulate the world. Of course, we've never read the book, but that's besides the point. Hitchens rightly points out that some people say that the protocols of the elders of Zion is a forgery. But to use the term forgery is wrong because when you use the word forgery, you say that a forgery means that it's a fake copy of an original. The protocols of the elders of Zion is not a forgery, it's a lie. Because there is no master plan that Jews have to control the world. The only master plan the Jews have had for thousands of years is figuring how to survive as an oppressed minority. That's been our great plan all along. But what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion reveals, in its constant republishing and its popularity, not just in the English world, but you should also realize of its enormous popularity in the Asian world and amongst in the Arab countries in particular, is that it perpetuates a lie, a myth, that reinforces the stereotypes of anti-Semitism that is based not on dislike, but it is based on fear. Jews aren't people you don't like because they're not like you. You hate Jews because you're afraid of them, because of what they do to the world. Why do I talk about this? I'm sure you've gotten the news uh, via email or most probably over Facebook, uh, there was a disturbing, um, a disturbing report of a food store in downtown Toronto called Food Benders. And they had a sign placed on their window of their shop saying, it's a gourmet food store, by the way, uh, a sign on the window of their food store saying that no Zionists are welcome. They have inside their store, uh, they were selling uh, coffee mugs, for, um, that, had a, that had a message on it that said, I love Gaza, free Palestine, um, all these other elements to it. Interestingly enough, when you look at their Facebook page and they announced that they had coffee mugs that had I love Gaza on it for sale, they were being sold for $20. 
And most of the complaints on the Facebook page wasn't about the message, it was about the cost of the mug. <laughs> but anyway, so um, all of these elements, and you hear this repeatedly, where Israel is referred to and Israelis are referred to as war criminals, they're referred to as colonialists, they're referred to as oppressors. Throughout time, Jews have also been referred to as vermin, as lice, as Christ killers, as demons. All of these ideas, these names, conjure up fear. They are meant to make people afraid of us, of what we stand for and what we do. Remember well that when people attack the state of Israel, not on legitimate policy issues, but when people t attack the legitimacy of the state of Israel, understand that they're attacking us. That anti-Zionism is simply a proxy now for anti-Semitism. Because as Brett Stevens of the New York Times wrote a few years ago, beautifully put, that Israel is now the proxy of the Jews of the world. It is the big Jew. This idea, of course, of fear, leads us to a broader question. And that is the question of that you could only hate things, you can only fear things that you don't know. Which is what we read in this morning's Torah portion as well. Towards the very end of this twisted, tangled story of Balak and Bilam, where they repeatedly try, Balak does, to get this non-Jewish prophet Bilam to curse the Jewish nation. And each and every time that Bilam thinks he's going to curse the Jewish nation, a blessing comes out of his mouth. And then finally, the non-Jewish king of Moab, Balak, says this to Bilam. Listen carefully. He says, Vayikachu, and now what I want you to do, I want you to go now with me to another place, that where you can't see them anymore. Because the idea was is that Bilam would stand on a mountain and overlook the Israelite nation and he would curse them and bring a curse and destroy them. But none of that worked. So then Balaam, excuse me, then Balak says, you know what, come with me. We're going to go to another place where you can't see the Israelites. And it is from there, now that you can't see them, that you will be able to curse them. Because you can only hate and fear the things that you don't know. In the course of my life, I have been so honored to be invited to speak at churches and mosques throughout this beautiful city. And I'll share with you another story that when I had the good fortune of being in Berlin a year ago with, this, with, with a delegation from this congregation, we went to the Ruth Cohen Schule in Berlin. It's a pedagogical school that, that trains young teachers. And most of the people who were training to be young teachers were Syrian refugees, refugees from Turkey, people who self-identify themselves as being descendants of Palestinians. They call themselves Palestinians. Anyways, we had a beautiful exchange with them the afternoon. We walked out of the school, and our bus was waiting for us, and I was about to step onto the bus. I felt a tap on my shoulder, and there were two gentlemen there. One was Turkish, and the other was his parents were Palestinians, he called himself a Palestinian. And they said to me, I've never met a Jew, let alone a rabbi in my life. 
but I like you. You can't hate or fear the things that you know. In the end, the final words that Bilam brings to the, brings to the story is a blessing. And what does he say? Looking down at the myriads of the people of Israel, Matovu Olecha Yisrael, Mishkenotecha, which is the words that we say in our prayers every morning. As a young child, it was amongst the first prayer words that I ever learned in my life. It's at the very beginning, the very beginning of our prayer services. Because in the end, we realize that words can become something powerful and beautiful that hatred and fear can be turned and changed into love and respect. The Talmud goes even further. They say that when Moses went to heaven to see God, what did he see God busy doing? Was God building worlds and universes, shaping stars and planets? No. The ancient rabbis imagine that Moses saw God writing letters inside the Torah because it is words that have the ability to help or harm, to shape or to destroy. Judaism's great message of the world is to use our words to build better things. Shabbat Shalom.